Bugger's on a mission And the stakes are getting higher Other teams in the majors Don't have a prayer against the friars Greetings and welcome to the East Village Times podcast. I'm your host, James Clark, and with me, as usual, is Austin Hartsfield. What's going on, Austin? How are you doing? I think we're both pretty sick, so that's a good start. Uh, <laughs> but when you, like, I just found a connection with our guest that I didn't know I had, so there we go. Yeah, yeah. Both of us are, are, are battling some uh, allergies here, but, uh, you know, the show must go on. Uh, with us today is Major Garrett. Chief Washington correspondent for CBS News and one hell of a Padre fan. What is going on, Major? How are you doing today? Oh, nothing going on in Washington. Very sleepy time here. <laughs> nothing happening at all. Yeah, very, very dormant time, right? Just nothing's really happening in Washington. Yeah, I just I just got my feet up on my desk, you know, taking yeah. a nap like yeah. I always do. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm glad we're able to kind of give you a little bit of escape from the, the chaos in Washington right now. Um we're we're not a very political show, so we'll stay away from that. And we'll, we'll God go. bless you, thank yeah. you. But for you know, first off, I would like to get your interpretation of the season that the Washington Nationals had, and just the feeling around the city of of or the I guess what is it the the, the, the Democratic district? <laughs> the district. There we go, the district of Washington, uh, D.C., and just the feeling of a of a championship. And how excited are you for you for that feeling to possibly come to San Diego? Well, I'm incredibly excited about the feeling coming to San Diego, uh, and I know we'll get to the new uniforms. I was uh, quite coincidentally uh, in San Diego that weekend and had a chance to talk to Peter Seidler and Ron Fowler, uh, and they are excited about the possibility of a deafening roar in Petco, much larger than has been at Minute Maid Park or was it Nationals Park. I mean, a, a place where... It, if baseball fans are watching and the Padres are in the World Series, they're going to hear a kind of suppressed roar from fans who have been so long waiting that it will be more than deafening. It will be decisive. I think that's all possible. I certainly look forward to those days. But let me just say a little bit about Washington. Um, so many Washingtonians did not grow up here. They come in and come out because politics is the trade of the city. And it's a migratory city uh, with people who bring their own pre-existing fan orientations to the city, like me. I mean, I like the Nationals because it's the team of my children. When the Nationals arrived in Washington in 2005, their first season, I said to my kids, who were kind of young then, all right, you're now released. You don't have to be Padre fans anymore. <laughs> I was raising you as Padre fans because there was no team here. Yeah, yeah. But, but now you're released because you have a hometown team. And the most important thing about baseball, I think, above any other sport, is this sense of home. The sense of it is your place, it is your team, it is your community, it is your sense of spring, summer, and fall. And so my kids are all Nationals fans, really love the Nationals. We spent a lot of time together as a family going to Nationals game, always when the Padres were in town. So I'd wear my Padre gear, they'd wear their Nationals gear. Yes, we were a publicly mixed family, I guess as you would <laughs> call it. Um, so I got wrapped up in their excitement because it was really genuine and I remember the first opening day in here in Washington, 2005. That was uh, no school day. I pulled all my kids out of school, said, we're going to the ballpark. You know, and I took the day off. It was a huge deal. And so their excitement was uh, genuine. Uh, I was able to uh, secure some tickets to the World Series games. And two of the games, games four and five, I took my daughter and her partner to both of those games. And we had a spectacular time. And she was just over the moon that, the team of her youth was playing in the World Series. Incidentally, my other two children are in San Diego going to college at the University of San Diego. <laughs> so they were in San Diego cheering for the Nationals. Um, and as for the team, I'll just say this. Um, anyone looking at that team in April and May said, this team is dying and has no sense of mission or purpose or camaraderie. And it was an open secret that people talked in Washington. Well, what's the what's the punch out date for Davey Martinez, the manager? I mean, it was just sort of yeah. assumed that he wouldn't yeah. make it to the All Star break. 
I mean, this team was not just middling or struggling. It was considered dead. And I will say this about the Nationals. There's an old saying in baseball all the time that I have always believed. You can't win the pennant in April, but you can lose it. Mm-hmm. The Nationals were trying. I mean, they were a terrible team, totally disorganized and with no sense of future. And then things began to click and turn around. And once they got that sense of camaraderie, that sense of the possible, they really began to gel. But even in mid-September, I went to a couple of games in mid-September. I said, they'll maybe make a a teeny bit of noise in the playoffs. But I said to myself, hmm, that's a World Series team. No, and never. The thought never crossed my mind. They're even getting to the World Series. But yet, lightning was found in a bottle and in the most unbelievable and unpredictable way. So it can happen. And how it happens, uh, nobody actually knows because chemistry can get you a long way, but chemistry can't create everything that was created. Uh, Innings eating starters can. And when you've got Scherzer and Strasburg, you're in any series, especially a five or seven gamer. So being from San Diego, fellow San Diegan was actually in that mm-hmm. very district and pitching there. How would, how did yeah. it feel to be able to watch Steven Strasburg like every time that he pitched? Well, it's great, and Strasburg's been a a, real, a really good uh, player for the Nationals. Uh, his arrival here was an electric electrifying experience. Um, those of us who remember the decision that the club made to keep him out of the playoffs several years ago didn't understand it. I still don't understand it, but. I guess in the long history of baseball, it's been vindicated because he was the MVP in this World Series. Um, and he's also become a more comfortable and natural major leaguer, uh, more comfortable with this clubhouse for sure, a little bit more natural, a little bit more relatable. Uh, he was kind of stoic when he arrived here, sort of unusual for native San Diegans. Uh, but um, I, there's a lot of speculation that he could come back, back to the Padres. I, th- I think it's probably less likely. I think the price is going to be astronomical. And if he hadn't sold his house in San Diego and bought one here, I would have think thought it was uh, more likely. I'm I'm a little uncertain and don't think that's probably what's going to happen. So you said you said that your kids basically grew up Nationals fans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What jersey was the most prevalent in your household? So uh, I also have a Nationals jersey because when they're not playing the Padres, I like the Nationals. I care about them. Um, so I have a Nationals jersey from the Chief. Uh, Chad Cordero, who was their first relief oh, pitcher. Nice. Nice. The guy who threw out the first World Series pitch at Game okay. 3. So I'm walking around with my Cordero jersey on. Everyone's like, whoa, you've been around a while. I'm like, yeah, I, I take this seriously. And uh, <laughs> my kids all like Ryan Zimmerman because of why? He was say. the first star. He was the yeah. first star that they got to know. Uh, and look, we, we went to a lot of games at RFK, and I miss RFK in that sense. RFK was an old shabby ballpark, but it was super fun to go to for baseball games. And uh, the kids have a lot of very, very fond memories, and Ryan Zimmerman's a part of all of those. And, and we went to a Nationals game down right field line uh, several years ago, and Ryan Zimmerman was at the plate, first inning, twilight game, uh, and he hits a foul ball to right field. And I've got my glove, as I usually do when I'm ever in foul ball territory. And the ball's high in the air, and my kid's like, Dad? And I'm looking at it, and it's getting a little closer. My kid's like, Dad? <laughs> and it's getting a little closer, the high arc, up through the twilight, past the lights. My kid's like, Dad? <laughs> I literally didn't have to move. I did not move a muscle except to extend my right arm above wow. my head, caught it on the fly. That, so Ryan Zimmerman's the, the national they think the most about. Wow. Catching a fly ball at a, at a, a game like that is a rarity. That's a, that's like winning the lottery right there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Got a nice little round of applause from my little yeah, teeny section, yeah. so it was all right. That's good stuff. Um, you know, being being there at the beginning of the, of the national franchise and seeing it firsthand is, is awesome. Uh, but let's talk about the San Diego Padres. You, you were in San Diego at, at an early time for this team. You saw the franchise as it started to grow up and develop in the late 70s and early 80s. Give us a little bit about what it was like watching the Padres back then. Well, so watching meant, meant going to the stadium because there was no television. Uh, yeah. you, had, you had radio or going to the ballpark. And it, look, let's be honest, in the really, really early days of the Padres, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, before Ray Kroc bought the club and there was very little excitement in the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerry Coleman and Bob Chandler would say this almost every game. Plenty of seats here at the big ballpark uh, <laughs> because there were 3,000, 4,000, 6,000 was kind of 
average of attendance in a massive stadium. How where, lovely was that stadium when it was first built? I mean, it was it was great. It, you know, it was a, a a beautiful design. Uh, brutalist is the kind of architecture it is. Um, but I thought it was beautiful. I, I thought I thought it was spacious, and I loved the circular uh, walkways that you would take yeah, down from take a, the general. Yeah. Those were really fun. As a kid, you could really have a blast on those things. You just start yeah. running, and six rings later, you're dizzy and delirious. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Your parents could just watch you circle, <laughs> circle the stadium and just keep an eye on you the whole time. It, it, you know, it, it, so so early on, you had your own vendor. You know, uh, your personal vendor who knew your name uh, because the stadium was so empty. So you got a lot of uh, uh, personalized service because uh, there were so few fans there, and the team wasn't very good. Um, some decent pitching in those early days, but very little offense. Remember the dimensions of San Diego Stadium when it first opened. I try to remind people yes. this all the time. So 330 down the line, 375 to left and right center, 420 to dead center with a 16-foot wall. Yeah. So think about all the numbers that Nate Colbert put up. Yes. Nate Colbert was a legit, and Cito Gaston were legit power hitters. Uh, basically, their careers buried in the biggest ballpark and the least hitter friendly ballpark in all of the national league. Yeah. Yeah. That, that 17 foot wall around was just monstrous. Yeah. So doubles were what you hit very you, home runs were hard to get doubles, lots of doubles. Um, and then when Dave Winfield, uh, played for the Padres, uh, really the most electrifying, uh, talent that, that any of the Padres fans had seen up until that time, several years into his career when his stats were just off the chart but because he was playing for the Padres and they got no national attention. Sports Illustrated wrote a story about Dave Winfield with the memorable headline, No One Knows the Doubles I've Creamed. <laughs> Especially in San Diego right back then. Exactly. So, so if, you, if you were a Padre fan back then, you were a tenacious person who could uh, live through losing and not hold it against the team. I never did. Um, I just love the fact that there was a team playing baseball, and I listened to games, at least 100, 150 games a year. I mean, if the Padres were on the radio, I was listening in some way or another. My backyard on a transistor radio in the car, I would beg my parents to always have the game on the car, uh, the car on the game, and the, uh, the the game playing on the car radio. Let me say that again. So I, I was a junior Padre. I got all the dopey swag. It wasn't even swag back in those days. It was just <laughs> yeah, plastic really. junk, you know? Um <laughs> And, and and I remember um, there was such a difficult job to market the Padres. I remember one time there was a bumper sticker, get mad with the Padres. Okay. Yeah, like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, the premise of that is you're mad at the Padres. So let's change your mind. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, poor Andy Strasberg, who was head of marketing at the time, you know, it was really a difficult thing to sell. Um, and in San Diego, there's always an alternative. Always an alternative. That's one of the things that makes pro sports in San Diego problematic because the alternatives are less expensive and a lot more accessible and in some cases more fun. And the Chargers were always the bigger deal. No question about it. The Chargers were always the bigger deal. And uh, But I played baseball. I didn't play football. I loved baseball, still do. So uh, for me, the Padres are a part of my nostalgic golden youth. And even though... They didn't win, and they were mostly lousy. It really didn't matter. Uh, and oftentimes, you would go to see better teams come to play. We never missed the Cincinnati Reds, for example. My parents would never miss. When the Reds came to town, the big red machine, we went to watch the Reds, you know, and they put on a hell of a show. Did you have a particular the, Padre team that you got attached to, like a certain year? Well, I mean, I liked them all, and – uh I was interested in every team uh, that ever played, but certainly when Ray Kroc first bought the club, there was a sense of energy and this sense of outrage. He gets on the PA system and calls out. That was totally a new dimension. Um, but for me, the team idea was never really important. I, I literally love them no matter what. I, 100 losses, 100 wins. I love them just the same. I'm. It's pathetic. It's a disability of mine. I fully acknowledge that. Um, <laughs> But certainly, certainly players made a huge difference. Uh, Dave Winfield made a huge difference. Randy Jones made a huge difference. People who were stars in their own right and did not show up at the All-Star game only because 
it was an obligatory gesture of the Major League Baseball system that each team have a representative. When we sent someone who was there on his own right, Raleigh Fingers, Gaylord Perry, Randy Jones, Dave Winfield, those were great sources of pride for any Padre fan. And yes, they were few and far between, but when they came, they meant a lot. And certainly the 84 team and that weekend, uh, here's the connection that uh, was mentioned earlier. My professional journalism career began in Amarillo, Texas in June of 1984. So that fall, when they came home to play the Cubs, I flew from Amarillo to San Diego and I saw all three games. Game three, game four, and game five. That was a Thursday, off day, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, both my ex-wife and my current wife don't like to hear me say this, but it's still true. Best weekend of my life. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, that feeling in, in 84 was just amazing. I mean, I was young at the time, but I can remember the city just exploding with Padre gear and Padre fanhood, and it just fans came out of, out of nowhere and that's just I mean, kind of what you saw in 98 as well and we're, we're starting to see that a little bit here with the brown jerseys and, and the machado and hosmer signing it's san diego can be a, a sports town it just needs a little bit of a awakening here and there to, to kind of rejuvenate the fan base wouldn't you say it does and as i mentioned before there's so many other options in san diego yes. and because so many people come to san diegans from other places they also have in some cases other fan allegiances and they sort of have to walk wash through them and the other thing is and <laughs> uh we've seen this lots of fans from other teams like to come to san diego so <laughs> we're always up against that too i mean no one goes to cleveland okay no yeah. one goes to they Pittsburgh. don't plan their vacation in cleveland to go no watch, watch they don't the <laughs> no even when the indians are good nobody does them oh let's yeah. go to cleveland for god's sake no it's like a lark but like yeah. hey every year well, let's go see the fill in the blank Cubs, yeah. Dodgers, San Francisco Giants, Rockies, Astros, yeah. whatever in San Diego. Let's build a whole weekend or a middle of the week around it. Yeah. So we have to go. We have to deal with that. And look, uh, I always think when I get home to San Diego, and I regard it as my home. I've lived in Washington for 1990. This is a place I work. It's not my home. San Diego's my home. When I get home, I downshift two or three gears. That's just the way this the the the, the, the yeah. pace of the city is. It's one of the great things about. San Diego. It's one of the most lovable things about it for me. But when you're downshifting from bigger, faster cities, um, that means you're not as intense. And when you're not as intense, you don't show up as much. And there is a kind of passivity about fan allegiances in San Diego that I think contribute to, A, the fact that we only have one major league team left. Now, the Chargers didn't leave because the fans weren't there. The Chargers le left because an owner thought there was something in L.A. that never was and never will be. So be it. Yeah. Um, and good riddance. Uh, but we've lost NBA franchises, never got an NHL franchise because it's hard. And I remember growing up, going to a city like Phoenix where my grandparents lived, there was no pro sports there. Now it's all over Phoenix. And I yeah. oftentimes think to myself, wait a minute. We're a much better place. Why the heck yeah. does Phoenix have everything? Yeah. It, the, the, the weather is just, it's just a, a factor that the, the Padres, any sports team are, are, are just competing against. And the <laughs> ironic part is the fan base from the other clubs come for the weather to see, you know, if you're in Milwaukee, you're in Chicago, you plan a weekend to come to San Diego, watch the right. Cubs, watch the Brewers play and spend a time at SeaWorld, go to the zoo, go to the beaches, go to Hotel Del Coronado. It's that the Padres are, are competing against the weather and the weather's just it's always going to be here but right it's uh, paradise can make you uh a little uh not lethargic but you just sort of get accustomed to it and yeah. for others traveling to paradise is a big deal yes. and when you wake up in paradise it's a short trip mm -hmm. and and for native san diegans it's just it's just another place that they've lived they haven't had the hardships <laughs> of of living in the east coast and shoveling their driveway and icing their windshield before they can leave to go to work. They, right. We just, don't, we just don't know those things. So I have this conversation out here in the mid Atlantic all the time. Oh, major, don't you love the seasons? I'm like, uh, they're all right. Uh, but I've lived <laughs> without them and that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice waking up in the dead of winter at 60 degrees, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Give, give us a little bit more about your self-proclaimed greatest weekend of your life. The, the Nate, the 84 world series. And so, it just, I mean, you were there at the, the Garvey home run. I mean, that, that's just yeah. an awesome event. So, for the 
Uh, I fly from Amarillo. I, my mother picks me up at the airport because she was a mini season ticket holder for many, many years uh, and was rewarded with World Series tickets and playoff tickets. My mom said, what do you want? You can't you can have one or the other. And I'm like, I've never seen a playoff game with the San Diego Padres. I'm choosing the playoffs. So yeah. I fly from Amarillo to San Diego that afternoon. My mother picks me up at the airport. She has a Cubs Busters T-shirt ready for me. I'm in nice. my suit. I worked at I work. I did. I worked that morning. Went straight to the airport. Got into San Diego. Take my suit jacket off. I still have my button-down shirt on, my work shirt on. Pull the t- Cubbuster T-shirt over that, and we go straight to the stadium because that's how much time we had. So we we had seats in the outfield for Game Three, and then I was in our regular plaza se- section, 26 seats, row 13 for Game Four, and then I was back out in center field for Game Five. So Game Four. That moment of the Garvey home run, I urge anyone who hasn't seen it, dig around on YouTube. It's not hard to find. It is the most explosive moment in Padres history uh, because that game, for anyone who remembers, it was a very up and down game. We had leads. We lost them. Yes. Very tense. And Lee Smith's coming in and you're thinking, all right, we're done. And if Lee Smith holds this lead, we're finished. This is it. And Garvey had only hit, I think, six home runs in the regular season. He was now not this, you know, clout machine driving balls out of ballparks home or away with any regularity. So the idea, oh, Garvey's going to come up and hit the game-winning homer, that was not a percentage angle at all. And yet he did, and I remember, so our seats were on the aisle. My seat was on the aisle. I was there with my brother, and I see the ball starting off Garvey's bat, and I, I get out of my seat, and I start running down the stairs toward the field level, like I'm chasing after the ball. <laughs> I just see it arcing, 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 and then I know it's gone, and I'm at the bottom of the well, that little strip where you would walk between the field level and the plaza seats at the old Murph, and there's suddenly the sea of people around me, and then I just literally parade my way back up the seats to my brother, hugging and and jumping up and down and, and screaming in elation with all these strangers until I get to my brother, and we can't stop jumping up and down. We just yeah. can't stop. It was, <laughs> it was the most electrifying sports moment I've ever witnessed, I may ever yeah. witness, until the it, next it one. May, in San yeah, it may have it may have well have been game five, I mean, because it just felt like this, this series was over at that point. I, I mean, as a little yeah, kid, but, I was just running around my house. Like, but just, but uh, but game five didn't start off well. We no, went out nothing, you know. And we were thinking, oh God, are we spent? You know. And then and then uh, the everything just shined on us through that series. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the other thing I remember about it was people forget Kevin McReynolds broke his wrist. Yes. That game four, sliding into second, yes. unable to play in the World Series and. If we have Kevin McReynolds instead of Bobby Brown, maybe that yes. series against the Tigers turns out differently. The only thing we have to know is the Padres have drawn in the two year, the two times they've gone to the World Series, the team of the decade, both decades. Yes. Oh, that's a 84 joke. Tigers, 98 Yankees. Team of the decade. Okay, yeah. not just the yeah, best exactly. team of that year. No, no, we got to we got to draw the bleeding team of the decade. Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, that's why we're 1 and 8. Yeah. The peaks and valleys of Padre fanhood are, are, are deep. For a, sure. lot <laughs> yeah, a lot of valleys. Yeah, a lot of valleys. A lot of valleys. Let's transition into the fact that you still do some writing for the Claremont Times, which I love. Every, every awesome. month. Awesome. G- give me a little bit about that experience and how did that start and just how much you enjoy being so Chris, able to get a little bit of a release. Yeah, Chris O'Donnell's the editor of the Claremont. So I grew up in Claremont. Now, my wow. mother... My sainted mother, who passed away in 2014, would say, no, Major, you grew up in Kearney Mesa, not Claremont. Kearney Mesa, there was a little bit of a class division. I never quite figured out when I was a kid about Claremont and Kearney Mesa. <laughs> anyway, there was a class division somehow that my mother was aware of. That Kearney Mesa was somehow a little bit ritzier than Claremont. I don't know. I, I think uh, it's flip-flop now. I think Claremont is probably considered more ritzy now than Kearney Mesa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in mi- middle-class suburbia of San Diego, I guess these things are somewhat tenacious. It never felt that way to me. Either, either, either way, Kearney Mesa, Claremont, that's where I grew up. Okay. And Literally, uh, I get this email one day from Chris who says, you know, you miss every shot you don't take. So you may not even answer this email, but would you like to write a column on the Padres for this little monthly shopper that I distribute? Uh, And it will go to most of the stores I bet you shopped in or your mother shopped in when you were a kid. I'm like, Hmm. why not? Literally, why not? He doesn't pay me anything. I don't make a cent out of it. But it is an escape from my Washington life for sure. 
And it's a way to talk about something I, I know and I have some historical perspective on. And it's a sort of a way to communicate um, to my neighborhood, uh, which I still love. Now, uh, do I have I don't even have any friends in that neighborhood anymore. Uh, my parents are both deceased. My family's all moved out. Uh, San Diego is in that sense, uh, except for the, my children going to the University of San Diego, um, a place of just nostalgia for me. But the fact that my my two kids and I didn't lead them there, I didn't tell them about it. I didn't put my thumb on the scale. They chose that college completely on their own, uh, except for the fact that they knew a lot about San Diego and spent a lot of summers there as kids. Uh, that's my attachment. Um, they're in college and I see them there all the time. I'll be home, uh, matter of fact, for Thanksgiving week uh, with them. So uh, this column is just a way to talk to my to not only to my hometown, but to my neighborhood and People there can't believe it. They're like, what is he doing? My my <laughs> friends here in Washington can't believe it. They're like, dude, you could send this stuff anywhere. I mean, yeah. it's pretty good. Why don't you give it? Why don't you get paid for this? I'm like, ah, never mind. That's too complicated. Yeah. Uh, it's easy. It's, it's light. Um, and it's fun. And when you can find something that's super fun, that doesn't come with much risk or much exposure or even any money, and you do it just for fun, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, you're you're getting an excellent release out of it, and you're getting everything that that you want. And that's 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 really all that matters. And and I know, a, and I've come to learn, I've come to learn, quite to my surprise, uh, that the column does not go unnoticed. Oh, yeah, it definitely goes. It's noticed here in San Diego for sure. Um, uh, I'd like to, I've I've gotten some feedback from the front office that they don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it's that, and that's what. Let's talk about that because. One of your latest pieces, uh, titled "Existence Is Futile," uh, <laughs> yeah. demanded a lot from the fans. Demanded more of action from the fans. Demanded. Talked about the fact that San Diego can, fans can get a little complacent and not demand accountability from their teams, in particular the Padres. Starting and with I, myself. And, and I, I, cont- I, I cannot, I cannot agree with that more because. It's that laid-back attitude that you described earlier. We just kind of get complacent and go, yeah, oh, well, the Padres didn't win. Or, oh, they didn't get this free agent. Uh, okay. We're still in San Diego. It's still paradise. But right. there needs to be an accountability. You need to demand it from the owners. You need to demand it from the front office. They need to go the extra mile, take the steps necessary in order to improve this franchise. It's just not going to happen on its own. It just it just doesn't happen that way. There right. has to be an effort. And, and I'm glad to see that recent ownership has taken – the steps necessary to to do their part but g- give me a little bit about that that article and in particular uh the references you made to jace tingler and whether or not you think that he is going to be the the man to lead this team into the promised land well uh i wrote about jace i, I actually wrote that column uh and i had some maybe some sp- spider sense or spidey sense or sixth sense because I wrote it, and then, then within 24 hours, I had no inside information, zero. I just had this feeling that it was all moving in that direction. I better say something. So I sent the column in, and we, we put it online. And, like, I think it was 18 hours later, out came the first initial reports and then the Padre confirmation on it. So uh, I just know that, that he wasn't my first choice. Uh, he wasn't the fans' first choice, and he wasn't, the consi- he wasn't consistent with what the ownership said initially someone with substantial major league experience would be the choice. And those are warning signs to me. They just are. Um, And I look at Dave Roberts in the Los Angeles Dodgers dugout and I say, hello, he was in our dugout. Okay. All right. He was in our dugout. He was the bench coach. Uh, He was a good uh, player uh, for us, for other teams. Uh, he is a great baseball mind, and he is now in Los Angeles. And we say to ourselves that Andy Green and Jace Tingler are both better options than that. I don't agree. I just think that's ridiculous. Uh, and letting him get away because, oh, he's a Bud Black guy or something. What? 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 I mean, that just seems like a huge whiff to me. And this idea of, of complacency, I start with myself. I mean, look, I'm the worst offender of them all. I've been swallowing this stuff for 50 years. Essentially, loving them no matter what. Well, if you love something no yeah. matter what, you don't command any respect. You're just a schmuck. Yeah, yeah, and it's true. You you can't have love. Love is a two way street, or it should be a two way street. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they, 
they should reciprocate that love back to us it's in some form uh other than just cheap bobbleheads and, and giveaways right um, you know and 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 the lovability a lovable losers and all that sort of stuff and and look i i get that the cubs traded off that for for a long time and for decades and it became a kind of a motif well i'm a lovable loser a cub fan because they're lovable losers okay fine but at some point you just have to say can can that literally be all there is yeah. and and i don't think we should tolerate that anymore look I was at the uniform unveiling, and to a certain degree, I think the uniform unveiling is an important moment in this idea of Padre fans actually setting demands Mm -hmm. and not letting up on it. And for those who set that in motion, and uh, I added my voice to it in ways that I could externally and internally, the fans prevailed, and that's setting a demand. Now, is is it a transformative demand? No. But I do think it's important how this team looks and how it projects itself. And being a indistinguishable, run-of-the-mill, one of eight teams wearing white and blue, never distinguished this franchise ever. Yeah. And yeah. It, didn't know, it didn't know every day that it would be noticed. Now we know we're noticed. Every day when we take the field, everyone knows who we are. And anyone who clicks on TV knows who we are. So your identity is now yours and yours alone. And the fans created that. So I give the fans credit for that. And I do actually, in this one case, believe what you wear makes a difference, says something about you. And um, I'm not saying that suddenly uh, that's going to make players who cannot compete compete better. But I do think it adds something to the aura and sense of self. And that's not unimportant. You need other talent. You need other things. And look, we have a general manager that picked two managers and only because of personal relationships or personal hunches. Well, he's going to live or die by them because I think Ron Fowler publicly has made it pretty clear. If 2020 is not a year of substantial turnaround, the manager and the GM are on uh, very short leashes. Yeah. Heads, heads will roll according to, according to Mr. Fowler. Yeah. Um, you can't look let, at the let, end of this season and, and say anything else. The end of the season was a catastrophe. Yes, it was. And, and it didn't get better as Green was released. It, it, I mean, I was in the clubhouse, and it just the feeling in that clubhouse was not relief or was not like, all right, let's go to the, let's get this done now. It just, they were just going through the motions, and that's totally. pretty sad to see. Totally. Um, let's talk about Ron Fowler and Peter mm-hmm. Seidler and the fact that they have a nice little good cop, bad cop thing going on. Um, Give me your impression of the ownership. We, you know, we talked about Ray Crock earlier and how much he had passion for the city of San Diego and passion mm-hmm. for the, the the winning aspect of the game. Um, I get that from Fowler, I, but I, I don't know if it's more he's just getting impatient or if he really does want to win or wants to successfully turn this into a, a great business transaction. Mm-hmm. Give me your 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 feeling on the two of them. I, I love Peter Seidler. He's a great baseball guy, great baseball man, um, very stoic, very quiet, though. Uh, right, like I say, total opposite of Fowler. Um, g- give me your impression of that of this ownership regime and 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 just comparing them to 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 regimes of the past, if you will. Right. So uh, let's let's just go back in the wayback machine for a second. Uh, Ray Kroc and the mentality he set in motion uh, was to demand more and to be uh, unsparing in his criticism internally and externally and. He died that year, 1984, but he sort of set that mindset. And Jack McKeon and Dick Williams were like that as well. Old school, hard drivers. And then let's go to the 98 team that went to the World Series. Uh, The most feared and reviled personally owner or GM the Padres ever had was Larry Lucchino. Uh, He's an old style East Coast jerk. Uh, And he would say that and did say that without any hesitation. And he set very high standards and was unrelenting and a jerk and an angry person to deal with if those standards weren't met. Mm. That kind of tenacity needs to come back to the front office uh, because this is a hard game and competition is real and you need to have a sense of very high expectations. And uh, the biggest jumbotron isn't setting high expectations. A beautiful ballpark is part of it. A nice fan experience is part of it. But that which you put on the field between the lines is the most important part of it. And I get the sense that uh, Ron and Peter 
have been trying to develop uh, internal mechanisms to set high standards and pursue them. And I think the Machado signing is reflective of that. Machado wouldn't come if he didn't think the ownership group had something to go on, a sense of the future and a sense of process. And I wrote about this in one of my columns. The Padres were second in line to the Angels for Shohei Otani. And that was a process in which the Padres learned a lot about how to pitch and how to describe the near-term future and what the organization was about and how it was going to go about its business. I think they have really tried to build a disciplined, confident, and high standards internal mechanism. Okay, that's all to the good. And there is undisputably this tremendous reservoir of young talent. Now it has to perform. And ownership has set those things in motion, put a lot of things in place, listen to the fans on the uniforms. Now it's time for the manager and the players to bring it to to fruition. But I do think Ron and Peter have um, certainly put money in the last couple, three years uh, where it hasn't been before. And I still think the Machado signing is, on balance, a very good one. I was disappointed, like a f- lot of Padres fans were, in his tail off in the second half of the season. Same thing with Hosmer, although Hosmer had a better season. Um, I think there's something, too, when players say a free agent year is a hard year the next year because you're so distracted in the offseason. You have no idea where you are and where you're going to land that it can affect your sense of energy and focus in your first season. I think there's some truth to that. Certainly it was true for Hosmer. I think it was true for Machado. But next year, no excuses, boys. None. None. It's uh, it's funny that we talk about, you know, Hosmer, Machado. Let's talk about a guy in that infield. Is Fernando Tatis the most, ex- like, I guess, explosive, exciting Padres player that you've ever seen? So he is certainly up there with Dave Winfield and Ozzie Smith. Um, for those of us who remember Dave Winfield, he was a wonder, an absolute wonder. So fast, with such a great swing, power. He could also hit line drives, did hit line drives. He patrolled right field magnificently, and he had an arm unlike any arm ever seen before for any Padre outfielder. Really an extraordinary talent at his time. And so was Ozzie Smith. Ozzie Smith was the most electrifying player I'd ever seen, and for Fernando Tatis has that uh, potential. But Tatis um, needs to, I believe, present his game for a season. I'm sorry. Uh, Three injuries in two years is not good. And you are... I was at the Nationals-Padres game where he pulled his hamstring. That play was completely useless. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. For For the moment... For the game, for anything, unnecessary. Uh, I don't. I don't. And, and that kind of extravagant physicality is a serious threat to his game. He's yeah. got to play baseball, not reckless baseball. And yeah. and that's an issue. Yeah, playing the game with reckless abandonment is is Pedroia. can be scary. <laughs> Pedroia, yeah. It can be scary, and and that is definitely a. You you a, can drive yourself right out of the game. You can injure yeah. yourself right out of the game. Yeah, yeah, and it's not going to, he's not going to age gracefully, you know, doing this at 25, 30 is going to be, the injuries are going to come even more, he's going to have to learn to tone himself down and, and kind of just play the whole 162, and, and it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint, a sprint. and it, it's something he's going to learn, hopefully. I hope so, hope, I hope so, yeah. because it's, it's, it's essential to the dynamic of that infield that he be there, and that he be as reliable on the routine plays as he is on the extraordinary plays because he makes plays that don't look physically possible. So you have two guys on that left side of the infield that can literally shut down rallies every single inning and completely take the life out of a dugout with their glove and arms. I mean, they can. Machado and Tatis playing 162 games or 150 games can be difference makers defensively. And look, uh, collectively, the Padres were a ter- were not were not a very good defensive team last year. I mean, there were a lot of deficiencies, much more so than I expected, and no one really rubbed off on each other, and that's a problem. This team needs to rub off on itself. It needs to lift each other up and move collectively in a sense of like the Nationals and the Astros always said this, you know, win each out, win twenty seven outs. 
you got to compartmentalize baseball that way. And there were lots of times this season where I just did not see that focus. Kind of winding down here, you got to see the uniform reveals. What's kind of the reaction and what was kind of the feeling immediately coming from that? Well, I just think it was really a, a great moment for the, 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 the fans who care about this issue um, because their caring about it got the attention of management. Management, I think, went through this process much too long. I, I don't think it needed to take however long it took, but you could have easily trimmed a year off of it. Mm-hmm. But the end product is excellent. I think the end product is great. The only, the only change I would make is I would make the alternate road the permanent road, meaning the Tatis uniform he wore at the reveal, I'd make that the permanent or the, the regular road and the brown jersey the alternate because I love the look of that pinstripe yes. off-color uh, road uniform. That's the only change I would make, but I guess they're going to go the other way. But the, that white home uniform, fantastic. Really good. It's got some of the old, some of the new. Fits perfectly, and we are recognizable everywhere we go, and I do think that's important for the Padres. And it was a great event. It was a nice, sophisticated event. Uh, yes, uh, full disclosure, everyone who saw me there knew I had a VIP thing around my neck. Uh, so I was treated differently than other people were, for sure. Uh, but there were a lot of VIPs. I wasn't by myself, for goodness sake. There were a lot in that little area <laughs> up front. And then there were a lot of tr- tremendous number of fans uh, who came down to see this thing. And that's an investment that they made. And it was a way for the, for the, for the management to talk back to them and say, we hear you. So... Uh, that issue settled now. Nobody has to worry about what this team is going to look yeah. like. And yeah. the, I think the Friar logo is also really important because that's yeah. who we are. That's what we have been. It's one of the best logos in all of Major League Baseball. So that's over now. That's settled. Now let's get back. That's, what, what, what is this now? This team, this idea, this identity, this color, what's it about? Winning. W's. W's. Yes. W's. Amen. Amen. That's that's hopefully the fan base can unite upon demanding more from this franchise, demanding more from this ownership, demanding more from everyone in order to put this team into the playoffs again, because it's been way too long, way, Um, way too long. Last question I have for you and probably the determining factor for the 2020 season is how is Jace Tingler going to motivate Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer? Or how do you think he's going to be able to motivate them? So I I think that's a huge, huge issue. And Mm -hmm. when I saw Jace Tingler at his press conference and then again at the the uniform reveal say, well, I've been on the phone with a couple. I've texted with a few. What? Yeah. Look, dude, face to face. Go find them where they are. Uh, You're the manager and you need to sit. You need to sit. Sit. Where you're looking at each other and like, this is it, amigo. I'm the manager. You're the player. You've yeah. got to do X, Y, and Z. And I need you to be leaders on these sorts of things. Now, maybe he's just soft peddling it and not telling us all that's actually going on. But he needs to lock in on those guys and say, you are the scene setters. You set the tone. The way you come to the ballpark, the way you demand things, the way you reinforce what I'm trying to do is the way this ball club is going to function. And if you guys want to set up your own little uh, disciplinary force within the clubhouse, maybe we should talk about that. Veterans sometimes do that to the betterment of young players. But these guys need to be the anchors, not only of that infield, but of that clubhouse where everyone looking around like, who are the leaders? Eric and Manny. They are the leaders. And Tatis is uh, kind of a great, energetic, young force, but who also needs to learn the game. And um, I, I, just, I just think that it is very much a part of how Tingler is going to succeed or fail what this relationship is. And how it manifests itself. Mm-hmm. And I was also not comfortable when he would when he said so often, I'm gonna make mistakes. Dude, yes. we know that. All right. <laughs> well, you well, know, well, honestly, you're gonna have successes and you and I mean I, I just wish I would have what I wanted to hear him say is look, we're farther away than we think, and we need to understand that. Mm-hmm. We got a long way to go. We need to work really, really hard. Yes, yes. This team yeah. needs to steal more bases 
It needs to field better. It needs to hit better with runners in scoring position. It needs to hit better with two strikes. It needs to hit better against the shift. All those things are top of mind. And we're not going to be successful until we identify the places we're far behind and address them systematically day by day. That's what I wanted to hear him say. Not I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but I'll have some successes too. Oh, well, so what? I mean, I don't need a Hallmark card, all right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought... I really thought he was going to speak better than he did. I, I, you know, Andy Green spoke really well, and he would mention those things. Whether or not he actually did those things and implemented in the clubhouses is, is a matter of debate. But he would bring up those things. He would bring up cultivating a Padres way and and getting demanding accountability from these players. And I, I didn't get any of that from Tingler. So I, you know, he has a baseball development background. So maybe he prefers to get more into their face and and not use the media in that right. way. So. Hopefully that's the case, and hopefully he gets results because we need results. Results need to happen. I wouldn't expect him to develop Hosmer or Machado any more than they already have. They're they're legit major leaguers, established major leaguers, but they do need to lead. They do need to be the 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 factor for these young players to look at and emulate and try to be. And it's I don't know. We're still a long ways away from from competing in San Diego, but it's nice to see. The sky's, the sky's opening up. There's there's blue skies showing themselves, but right. whether or not the clouds are going to roll back in or not is a, is just it's, we'll just have to wait and see, right? I mean, the one thing he has going for them is uh, finishing the season 22 games under 500. Uh, expectations are lower than they ought to be. I mean, <laughs> that's why the end of the season was such a catastrophe because you you just can't look at that. No one in Major League Baseball looks at this clubhouse and says they're ready to win. How could you? How yeah. could you? Yeah. And 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 one of the problems with sports, it's one of the problems is politics. There's way too much exposure. Way, way too much exposure. We see all these people way too often. Way too often. <laughs> Politicians should be left alone. They should talk only occasionally. And same thing with managers. But we see them all the time. They're in our face all the time. And we get tired of the same kind of answers, right? Yeah. Sports fans get tired of the same kind of answers. People who watch politics get tired of the same kinds of answers. In politics, it's because they don't know what else to say because things move slowly. Well, same, sometimes that's in sports the same way, too, and we're overexposed. So, look, winning solves everything. If Tingler does something different privately than he does publicly, and publicly he's sort of hard to read, okay, whatever. I don't care. Win. Win. Yes. yes. Win series. Win games. Win outs. You know, Just execute. Win. <laughs> win. Just win and look around and say, Dodgers, we're coming after you. Giants, you're not, you're not even going to find us. Rockies, you're going to be behind us. Diamondbacks, we don't care who you are. We're going to win. We're here to want own the West. Let's start talking like that, thinking like that, and playing like that. Yeah, that uh, that attitude needs to come that Padres way, and and hopefully the uniforms kind of give us an identity and, and start to bring that mentality forth for this franchise. So, uh, it's it's tough being a Padre fan. It sure is. Uh, there's definitely <laughs> deep valleys that we have to uh, endure. Uh, thank you. But so there's much. always Petco. Yeah, there's always there's always the the the, the over abundance of food and and drinks at Petco to to, and, and, to and calm look, your nerves. Right? Just just to show you that that I am uh, literally unreachable. I mean, you've heard all this you know pronouncements from me and all this big hard talk and everything. Yeah, look after the reveal, where did I go? Straight to the team store. Where did I drop six hundred bucks? Okay, so <laughs> right. success, right? The free, the free, free booze work again. They're handing Number out. one schmuck. That's me. You know. <laughs> well, the marketing department is is you have to give them credit because they have successfully marketed this team the past three or four years, and and they've just been horrendous to watch on the field. So, and, and you know they're drawing. So you have to two. you have to tip your hat to them. Yeah, twenty two games under five hundred, two and a half million fans. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much, Major, for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure. It it's it's great hearing uh, some some of the old school stuff that I like to talk about. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an old school fan myself, so uh, appreciate the time. Thank you so much, and and best of luck in Washington. Uh, let you. us know if you ever need this release again. It's it's awesome to talk Padre baseball with you. Great, thanks so much. Have fun, guys. Welcome back, folks. Thank you for joining us on episode number 113 of the East Village Times podcast. Uh, awesome conversation with Major Garrett. There, we went a little old school talking about some of the. 70s and 80s Padres. Uh, I want to thank Austin for for staying awake during that. I know that's not exactly your uh, no. I had a blast. Spot. 
your sweet spot as far as talking about the Padres, but you know, it's it's nice to to reminisce about some of the old school stuff for sure. No, it was pretty cool because um, we have that Amarillo connection, and it's kind yeah. of a cool start when you know people that they know, and it's uh it's a talking sure. point immediately. For sure, and and you know, Major is a is a great guy. I mean, supporting the team for so long and doing it across the country has been fantastic, and the fact that he's able to to churn out those Claremont times sports that uh, releases. That, that's, that just shows the heart that he has and, and the compassion he has for the game of baseball. And we love that. Um, we ran a little over with the show, uh, so we're not going to talk too much. Uh, obviously the jerseys have been changed. Uh, we didn't do any kind of emergency podcast for that or anything because it was, you know, it's just, it's jerseys, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, there, it's nice to see the Padres embrace their, past and form an identity and get these brown uniforms out there and they're pretty sweet too i have to admit your thoughts real quick on on the browns on the brown jerseys uh, austin i really like all of them actually uh i think the home i think i might once matt goes up and gets promoted i think i might <laughs> cop a mckenzie gore home jersey because that thing yeah. is sick but I really yeah. like the home whites. Uh, if I had to rank them of my favorite ones, the road jersey is easily the last one. Uh, I like the the fact that you know this team now has an identity. It's not as Dan Zimborski would put it, uh, the MLB custom team setup. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I think it's good. I think it's good to have identity. Uh, we actually talked about with a guest on the next episode about the fact that who else has brown. Nobody. Yeah, really, really. And that's what it's about is creating an identity, something that's been long overdue for this franchise that's over 50 years old. Um, hopefully this this is able to transition this team into a winning franchise. And it's 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 exciting to be a Padre fan right now, and we'll just have to hope that uh, they continue to trade trend the correct way. Um, awesome show today with Major. Uh Thank you so much, folks, for joining us. Uh, you can check us out uh, at eastvillagetimes.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is evt underscore j clark. Uh, Austin is at Hartsfield PC. Uh, thank you, folks, folks, for joining us. Uh, episode one thirteen is in the books. Uh, we recorded back to back episodes today. You'll be receiving one on today, which is probably Wednesday at the time of uh, at the time you're probably listening to this, and you're getting one on Saturday too. Yes, we did double double duty today. Uh, thank you so much, folks, for the support. Uh, go Padres. Uh, East Village Times podcast is signing out.